0: The Jerusalem Channel is made possible by viewer support. Thanks for watching. The Apostle Paul was determined to go up to Jerusalem, even though many of his friends and colleagues warned him that he'd be putting his life in grave danger. So, a question I want to examine today that will be beneficial to every believer is this. Was Paul being foolish, headstrong, and irresponsible? Or did he have a strong conviction and inner leading from the Holy Spirit? Today, we'll look at Paul's fateful decision to return to Jerusalem for his last time, and we'll also visit one of the cities in Israel that Paul passed through on his fateful journey up to Jerusalem. Today we're leaving behind us the old city of Jerusalem and we're headed up to the Israeli northern town, beautiful city of Akko. And we're going to be talking about how when the Apostle Paul came here to Jerusalem on his last trip, it was the beginning of the end for him. As he passed through Akko, he went on to Caesarea and there he was given a prophetic word. Welcome to the city of Akko. It was only about two and a half hour train journey from Jerusalem and now we're gonna explore the beautiful old city of Akko. The port city of Akko on Israel's Mediterranean coast is memorable for its antiquity and biblical connections. Akko first appears in chapter one of the book of Judges as one of the Canaanite cities. These days, thousands of tourists enjoy exploring the ancient stone passageways and bazaars of the old city. The church here was perhaps founded by Philip the Evangelist, or perhaps the gospel was first preached to the Jewish colony here by disciples who were scattered after the persecution that arose in Acts chapter 11 over Stephen. When St. Paul landed here, it was a commercial city an easy day sailing from Tyre, about 30 miles to the north, in what's now Lebanon. Well, from walking in the footsteps of Paul and Akko, now let's explore the emotional and spiritual challenges he would have felt on his fateful journey toward Jerusalem. Let's talk about divine guidance and doing the right thing. We all have made many decisions on a daily basis. And God does provide us with His Word for principles and guidance. I do believe as well in the providence and sovereignty of God in believers' individual lives. But Bible scholars are sometimes divided on whether or not the Apostle Paul made a mistake in going up to Jerusalem for the last time, where he fell into trouble and imprisonment. After all, Paul had been repeatedly warned. I once knew a Pentecostal couple who disagreed over Paul's decision to go up to Jerusalem. The husband said Paul was in the will of God, but the wife said he wasn't, or vice versa. I can't remember which, but the point is they were both spirit-filled believers, and yet they couldn't see eye to eye on Paul's decision. Today I want to look at this dilemma and see how it affects us, and it also sheds light On the Hebrew roots movement in the churches. St. Luke, the author of the book of Acts, traced Paul's missionary journeys. In Acts 20, verse 22, towards the end of his journeys as a free man, Paul told the Ephesian elders, And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, bound in the Spirit, not knowing what shall befall me there, Except, he said, that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Now, please note carefully that Paul said he was bound in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, despite warnings from believers. And so this phrase alone, bound in the Spirit, indicates that Paul had definite marching orders from the Lord. His ship landed at Tyre. On the Mediterranean coast where they stayed with disciples for seven days. And while in Tyre, Acts 21.4 records that through the Holy Spirit the believers kept warning Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. So on the one hand Paul was being Spirit-led to go but on the other hand Spirit-filled believers were constantly warning him not to go. So what's going on here? Is God double-minded? Well, of course not. Was Paul being tested by God to see whom he would obey? Or was Paul being continually prepared by the Holy Spirit to know that Jerusalem wasn't going to be an easy ride? It would be perilous. Well, Paul soldiered on and came to the town known in Judges 131 as Akko. And they lodged overnight, no doubt fellowshipping and conferring about spiritual matters with local believers. And it was in this city a number of years ago that we held very successful gospel meetings. Akko's population today includes a large number of Israeli Arabs, who are very open to the move of the Holy Spirit. At the time of our gospel outreach, there seemed to me to be an open heaven over Akko, thanks to the pioneering efforts of faithful believers, such as Paul. Next on his journey, Paul and his companions called in Caesarea, at the house of Philip the Evangelist, whose four daughters were prophetesses. Philip had held a citywide revival in Samaria. He had evangelized the Ethiopian emissary of Queen Candace, and afterwards he had been supernaturally transported to Caesarea. Philip had a gift to expound the Hebrew Scriptures, proving that Jesus is the Christ, the longed-for Jewish Messiah. Philip's four daughters had the gift of prophecy, a fulfillment of Joel 2.28, where the Lord says, in the last days, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. While Paul was staying in this very spiritual home, a prophet from Judea named Agabus visited, and prophetic people can be very dramatic. Agabus acted out a prophecy in front of everybody. He took Paul's sash, and binding his own feet and hands, Agabus prophesied, Thus says the Holy Spirit, In this way the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and hand him over to the Gentiles. Agabus didn't forbid Paul to go up to Jerusalem. Rather, he simply prepared Paul for what would befall him. You see, it's a blessing when we're forewarned about trials, just as the prophet Simeon had forewarned Mary, the mother of our Lord, that a sword would someday pierce her heart, and that painful prophecy indeed was fulfilled at the cross. Remembering Simeon's prophecy must have given Mary strength to endure that horrible perplexity of the ordeal. When we're forewarned, we're forearmed. So, when everybody in Philip's house heard the prophecy of Agabus, they begged Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Just, I suppose, as the apostle Peter had wrongly insisted that Jesus should not go up to Jerusalem to die. Out of love and concern, the disciples reasoned that Paul should remain at liberty. But like Jesus, Paul had apparently set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. And so he said to them, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So he couldn't be stopped. And the people said, the Lord's will be done. Love always means well, but in the end, the best conclusion concerning all difficult decisions and deliberations is what these believers concluded. The Lord's will be done. So now continuing on in Acts 21, Paul arrives in Jerusalem where he's soon apprehended by authorities and put into great danger. The brethren, the elders, and James, the half-brother of Jesus, had welcomed Paul joyfully And he had recounted to them all the great things God had been doing among the Gentiles through his ministry. And to their great credit, the Jerusalem brethren glorified God without envy or jealousy. Then, no doubt, it was inevitable. They mentioned to Paul the old controversies that had hounded the fledgling Jerusalem congregation from the beginning. The elders told Paul, you see, brother, how myriads of Jews have believed. A myriad contains 10,000, meaning that tens of thousands of Jews now believed in Jesus as Messiah. But they were all jealous for the law and zealous. So when Paul arrived in Jerusalem, the Christian Jews were still unanimous in their attachment to the law of Moses. And this situation throws light upon his epistle to the Galatians and many other passages in Paul's letters. How fascinating that the issues experienced and debated in the early church are once again being debated in our day because of the growing number of Messianic believers in Israel and around the world. James and the elders reported to Paul that the zealots were under the mistaken impression that Paul had taught his fellow Jews to forsake circumcision and the laws of Moses. But that was a totally false charge. Paul never taught a Jewish person to abandon Moses in the Torah. But what he strongly taught was that Gentile believers in Messiah shouldn't be forced to conform to Jewish laws. It was Paul's practice to become all things to all people to win them to Messiah. To the Jews, he was a Jew under the law but he did not require Gentile believers to submit to Jewish ceremonial law because he taught that Jesus, Yeshua, is the fulfillment of the law. What Paul in actuality taught concerning the law of Moses was that neither Jew nor Gentile can be saved by its institutions because salvation is by faith and faith alone in the atonement of the Messiah. This was also the doctrine of James and the elders at that time, really. And how do we know this? Because in Acts 21, where we are at the moment, James reiterated the earlier ruling of the Jerusalem council that had been decided back in Acts chapter 15. The council had ruled that the Gentiles did not have to become Jews, but they were required to abstain only from four things from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and they were told to abstain from sexual immorality. In general, the Messianic believers of Jerusalem at that time were persons who accepted Yeshua as the Jewish Messiah, but they saw no reason to break with their lifelong observances of their religious training. Although they believed in Jesus of Nazareth as the true Messiah and fulfillment of Judaism, nevertheless, they didn't possess the level of revelation that Paul had to see that Jesus is, in fact, the sum and substance of all the ceremonies of the law. They just couldn't bear to hear of any abrogation. So the extreme party of the Pharisees prided themselves on the title zealots of the law, And that, by the way, was a description that Paul himself had once claimed in Galatians 1.14. So now, in an attempt at unity or reconciliation, James and the elders of the Jerusalem church asked Paul to gratify the Messianic Jews with a public compliance with a point of ceremonial law. But the whole well-intentioned plan backfired. The commentaries explain that it's vain to attempt to court the favor of zealots or to court a party spirit because in the end, the act of compliance did not pacify anybody. So the commentaries warn us not to try to press believers into performing religious ceremonies, to try to placate others, especially if the ceremonies are contrary to their own judgment. Many of the commentaries that I studied this week commended the great apostle for his humility in trying at least to submit to the suggestion of James and the elders, but a riot ensued in the temple complex when Paul was recognized, and as a result, Paul became a prisoner of Caesar. He's now in chains for the remainder of his life, and he languishes two years in prison at Caesarea, where he was sent, and most scholars believe he was a prisoner in Rome for about three years. So, was Paul in the will of God or not? But before rushing to judgment, let's consider the sovereignty of God. It's a big factor. Consider this. Because Paul was now a prisoner, this very active missionary was confined, and he was forced to put down his thoughts and teachings into writing. And his letters have been studied And cherished in the New Testament for the church's edification for nearly two millennia. Some of the greatest Christian writings have been the result of time spent in prison, and such was the case of John Bunyan. He wrote his classic book in prison, Pilgrim's Progress. So now, to review this controversy about Paul's last journey to Jerusalem, it appears that the Holy Spirit sent him messages which perhaps would have stopped a lesser man from entering the holy city. Paul resisted all hindrances. And was he correct in so doing? Some preachers, and I looked up their sermons on the internet, claim that Paul exhibited a martyr's complex, that he was stubborn or even disobedient, like the unnamed prophet in 1 Kings, chapter 13, a very scary narrative. I found one commentary especially helpful, explaining that believers receive the Holy Spirit by measure. Therefore, the prophets of Acts 20 and 21, who all foresaw impending danger for Paul, might have lacked the higher inspiration which guided the apostles to go to Jerusalem. Paul accepted the information of the prophets. He filed it for future reference, so to speak, but he did not yield to their warnings. The situation in jerusalem grew so violent that a commander in the roman army who was in charge was afraid that paul would be torn to pieces when a dispute broke out in the sanhedrin court concerning paul's testimony the commander ordered the soldiers to go down and remove paul by force and bring him into the barracks now then if you will turn with me to Acts 23, 11, this is a key, and we'll see what happened next. And we'll actually hear the Lord's own approval of Paul's actions in Jerusalem. The Lord appeared to Paul by night, and Jesus stood by Paul and said, Be encouraged, Paul, just as you have been a witness to me here in Jerusalem, you must preach the good news in Rome as well. So Paul was in the will of God after all. There's not a word of rebuke or displeasure, no recriminations from Jesus in that night vision. There was no rebuke of Paul having ventured into Jerusalem outside of the will of God. There was no question asking, what are you doing here when all the prophets warned you not to come? You see, I think it's fair to say that Paul had learned how to be led by the Holy Spirit through his many years of ministry. We have an example in Acts 16.9. That verse records that during the night Paul had a vision of a Macedonian man begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. And at another time, he was directly forbidden by the Spirit to go into Asia, and so he didn't go. We may conclude that Paul knew when he was following divine guidance. And on this occasion concerning his last visit to Jerusalem. We have evidence here in the book of Acts that he was deeply convinced of the will of God, that he was taking the path of duty despite the many warnings. That night Jesus himself visited Paul, and let's consider the various levels of comfort that were given to the Lord's special apostle. First of all, it's amazing that the Lord himself appeared to Paul. This is an honor and an immense comfort in the weary nighttime to see the Lord after such a harsh and hard ordeal of misunderstanding and mistreatment. Secondly, the verse in Acts 23 says that the Lord himself stood by Paul. That was wonderful commendation of Paul's actions. Believe me, when the Lord himself stands by you, you don't need anybody else. And the Lord spoke words of assurance and encouragement to the beleaguered apostle He said, be of good cheer, Paul, because the Lord assured him a future service and ministry in Rome, which would have eased his mind about his trial or concerning the assassination plot that was even then brewing amongst his enemies. Jesus said, thou must bear witness also in Rome. So those were words of strength, just as Paul had done so well to bear witness in Jerusalem. So you see, Paul was in the very center of the will of God. He wasn't in God's permissive will, and he received the Lord's commendation and comfort. So I disagree with preachers who say Paul made a mistake by going to Jerusalem at that time. And it's important to repeat what Paul himself had said in Acts twenty twenty-two. what he said to the Ephesian elders. And now he said, Behold, I'm going to Jerusalem bound in the spirit not knowing what shall befall me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me." So Paul already knew he was headed for trouble, and it seems unlikely that he needed any further warning about it. He was simply following an inner leading of the Spirit. He said, Now I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem. Bound in the Spirit, that's what he personally believed. No doubts disturbed the Apostle's inner peace. He knew God's guidance, and he knew that regardless of the consequences, it was his duty to go. I can think of a couple of instances in my own ministry when God led me to hold a gospel tent at the pyramids in Egypt, and on another occasion when I was directed to lead a seven-day Jericho march in Jericho. The march was a parable. It was to be a prayer in motion, to believe God on behalf of a billion souls, spiritual warfare on behalf of those bound behind the walls of religion, to believe for their release from captivity and darkness. And we're seeing so many answers to those prayers now. I was also led by the Lord to take a prayer journey of 12 intercessors into Iraq a number of years ago when Saddam Hussein was in power. That journey was part of our ministry's Isaiah 19 Highway Prayer Initiative. On all of these occasions, plenty of high-powered, Spirit-filled believers advised me against these missions, saying they were too dangerous. But I felt compelled by the Spirit of God to go, and I had my husband's approval. So what am I saying here? A man of God or a woman of God may have a clear knowledge of God's will, but prophecies, advice, and warnings from family, friends, and even very spiritual persons may influence us to disregard God's will. On the one hand, there is safety in counselors, but on the other hand, when a man of God or a woman of God has an inward conviction of what's the right thing to do, All prophesying of the consequences becomes temptation to be resisted. This level of faith takes real discernment and spiritual maturity, attributes that the Apostle Paul had surely developed. I hope you understand that this level of guidance doesn't apply to novices. While in their prophetic encounters with the Apostle Paul, certain persons, when exercising their prophetic gifts, foresaw the consequences of his going to Jerusalem, and they stated what they saw in the Spirit. But the apostles' leadings concerned duty, while the prophets' impressions concern the facts of the matter. So Paul had to decide whether he would go to Jerusalem. And one commentary explains it like this. God certainly put before Paul's mind the suggestion of prudence, that there would be special peril in this journey. God was telling him in no uncertain terms. It will cost you imprisonment and imminent risk of death. Counsels of prudence are from the Lord. In words of loving friends, bidding you spare yourself from overworking or from danger may be from the Lord. And like the warnings of these disciples, it's necessary to ponder and to pray over such warnings. But I like the way one commentary put it, God, in effect, was saying to Paul, this journey, though it will be full of peril, will result in the fulfillment of your desire to preach about the Messiah in Rome. God was saying this journey, though it cuts you off from other evangelistic pursuits, will result in epistles that will make you the theologian of generations to come. So now, God was saying, Judge if you possess the courage, and if you know that I'll be faithful to you, then go. Well, this whole episode in Paul's spiritual life takes a lot of maturity to grasp. The best commentaries I study concluded that the apostle would have been altogether wrong if he had yielded to the suggestions of his friends and if he had resisted the inward leading of God's Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Oftentimes in our walk with the Lord, we'll find that our most heartbreaking duty is to resist the sound reasonings and pleadings of our loved ones. They often have well-meaning reasons to delay us or to hold us back from the very exploits that God is plainly calling us to do. The commentaries teach that the prophets' persuasions tested Paul's loyalty to the Spirit's inward leadings. So in the end, I want to thank God that Paul did not yield. I'm glad he was God's man. This example of the great apostle teaches mature believers loyalty to the inward witness of the Spirit of God. After all, Romans 8.14 is very clear on this. It says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. Well, I hope this program has been helpful, and if you'd like to ask any questions or seek further clarification on anything I've said, do feel free to contact me on the social media or at our website at exploits.tv, where you can sign up for our free newsletter exploits. And in the meantime, I very solemnly want to urge you never to rest until you found rest and security in Jesus the Messiah. Perhaps. You're already assured of your salvation and eternal destiny in Jesus. But if you are a person who doesn't have assurance of your salvation, and if that's the case, you may be wondering, what do I have to do to be saved from my sins? Well, the Bible says that all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus shall be saved. And if you're willing to repent and to turn from sin, the risen Lord Jesus will receive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness by the power of his atoning blood. Amen. It's my prayer that you'll always be led by the spirit of God and that you will follow him completely. And don't forget, our Jerusalem Channel app is available free to download from your app store. And so until the next time we're together, earnestly contending for the faith and praying always for the peace of Jerusalem, I'm Christine Dark. Shalom and Maranatha.